0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 12th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, editor in chief and Lindsey Baden, deputy editor. Today, we're also joined by Kathy Newsel. Kathy is the director of the Center for Vaccine Development and Global Health at the University of Maryland, one of the leading academic vaccinology centers in the world. She's done extensive work on vaccines, both on the epidemiology of vaccine preventable diseases and in clinical trials of vaccines and vaccine candidates. Kathy serves as an advisor to many national and international organizations, including the U.S. CDC, where she was a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and the WHO, where she's the only American member of the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization. Kathy's also one of our most frequent peer reviewers, and we continue to rely on her excellent judgment to help us make decisions on manuscripts submitted to the journal. Kathy, this has been a complicated time for vaccines. On the one hand, the rapid development of effective COVID vaccines represented a research triumph. But on the other hand, the reluctance of many to get these potentially life-saving vaccines has spread to other existing vaccines, leading to an increase in potentially lethal diseases. So I'd like to start by asking you about the latter. To give two examples, we're familiar with the ongoing outbreak of polio in New York state, and there's a large outbreak of measles in Zimbabwe that's claimed the lives of more than 700 children. Both of these are linked to communities that have expressed reluctance to get vaccines. So what do you think we can do to reach more people with vaccination?
1: Yeah, so thank you for that question. You know, it really is quite complicated. You mentioned that COVID was the most rapid vaccine rollout in history, a highly successful and many efficacious vaccines, and yet a lot of vaccine hesitancy. In regard to the measles and polio, again, it's really quite complicated. These are highly transmissible diseases and they depend on high vaccination rates for their control. So while vaccine hesitancy is likely contributing, it's really not the sole reason for these outbreaks that we're seeing. You know, there was a real backsliding in immunization coverage across the world due to COVID-19 service disruptions, due to services you know, having to be allocated in a different way during COVID. And so again, on the one hand, we do have hesitancy. On the other hand, we have fewer children who have been vaccinated against these common transmissible diseases.
2: Kathy, I wanted to ask about vaccine availability because one of the differences between the COVID vaccines in many countries and the common childhood vaccines is the time that they became available to people. Has that made a big difference in adoption rates?
1: I think the access to vaccines absolutely made a big difference. We've all seen the global maps where you know the U.S. and the other rich countries and basically the countries where the vaccines are made were the ones that were able to receive the COVID-19 vaccines first and roll them out first. So we saw huge waves of SARS-CoV-2 infection go through many of these low resource countries. At that point, when the vaccine becomes available, you know, it seemed less relevant and less important than it did early on in the pandemic. So again, I think you're seeing a combination of factors. This issue of where vaccine is manufactured is very important to ultimate vaccine access was really highlighted during the influenza pandemic preparedness years. And it's something that we're really going to need to tackle now to be sure that this doesn't happen again with the next pandemic.
0: Looking at COVID vaccines, The mRNA vaccines that have been heavily used in most of the world have proved to be very useful for preventing severe disease, but at least at this point, much less effective at preventing symptomatic illness. So could we do better? What kinds of new approaches might result in vaccines that could limit infection and maybe last longer than the current vaccines?
1: Yes, the mRNA vaccines were really in the right place at the right time. Again, they allowed us to develop vaccines quickly. In those initial studies, they were highly, highly effective in preventing even mild disease. And we've seen that the virus has evolved. And then we've learned with time that the duration of immunity, certainly against mild infection, is less than we would like. You know, these vaccines, as you've said, have Really held much better against severe disease. So the mRNA vaccines are new. You know, we're learning as we go about durability, about mucosal immunity. It's really hard to develop a respiratory virus vaccine that prevents infection. You know, we've never done it well with influenza. The closest we came was with a live attenuated influenza vaccine that was used in children, is still used in children, but again, was more effective at preventing viral replication in the nose. So in my view, we need to go back to the basics. We need to learn more about mucosal immunity, about innate immunity. There are many intranasal vaccines for COVID-19 in development right now. And we will need to stay tuned to that story.
2: So, Kathy, as we look at the rapid development of COVID vaccines, which we've worked together on for the last three years and has been quite remarkable, it does, in my mind, beg the question of how much we've forgotten how well the other vaccines work. You touched on this a little bit earlier. The smallpox vaccine, polio, measles, diseases where vaccination has really led to massive control and even eradication with smallpox and some of the serotypes with polio. How is it that we're not able to communicate this thoughtfully to our community and be able to make sure that the vaccines that work and work in blocking transmission are appropriately utilized globally?
1: yeah it's a great question lindsay and i think the answer is somewhat dependent on the perspective of the country um Etc. I think here in the U.S., you know, it's difficult and we really haven't invested in the research in vaccine hesitancy in science communication that we have invested in the basic sciences and the clinical sciences. And so we need to do that. It's not developing the vaccine that's the ultimate goal, it's preventing the disease that's the ultimate goal. And so that includes getting vaccines into people's arms. So that's certainly part of it. Now, we do know from work on influenza and COVID-19 that there's a relatively small segment of the population who's really anti-vaccine. There are a large number of people that are uncertain and a little hesitant, and having a strong recommendation from a trusted provider can overcome that. So we need to get that message to our healthcare providers. I think in other countries, it's complicated. This really is not easy. You look at the world right now, we're having unprecedented conflict. It's very hard to reach children in Syria, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, You know, a third of Pakistan was underwater about two weeks ago. So geography affects this. Refugee status affects this. There are many, many factors where vaccination rates are actually backsliding, and it has nothing to do with hesitancy. It has to do with these many socio-political and climate factors that are affecting the world right now.
0: Kathy, you lead an academic effort to introduce new vaccines to the world. So what, in your view, is the role of academic researchers as compared with industry in the development and use of these new vaccines?
1: I think it's absolutely critical that we have academics involved in new vaccine introduction. NGOs, foundations are also critical. I like to say that industry is a market-driven approach. Can I commercialize this vaccine? Many decisions are made by boards. And really from the academic perspective, we try to look at the public health driven approach. It's not, will this vaccine make money, but will this vaccine have an impact on public health? And so these public private partnerships, obviously we must have industry partners, manufacturers must make these vaccines. But if you look at malaria, you know, typhoid, cholera, loss of fever, you could name a number of them. There's really not money to be made with those vaccines. And yet they're some of the most important to public health. And so, again, I think the involvement of academics is really critical. And maybe another example I'll give is the recent monkeypox outbreak. You know, we've known that monkeypox has been endemic in certain African countries for decades. We've known that the epidemiology, for example, in Nigeria had been changing five years ago. We recognized there was more human to human transmission. And yet this was a disease that was largely ignored until it affected rich countries.
2: Kathy, you touch on several very big points, in particular, I'd like to highlight two of them and get your thoughts. How do we sort out the economic model for companies to be in the vaccine space, given the return on investment is unfavorable compared to other types of pharmaceutical development? And the other is thinking about the regulatory framework for how products are moved forward. And at least in the US, in the last two and a half years, the EUA, the Emergency Use Authorization Mechanism, and how that, from a regulatory standpoint, has allowed innovation for us to move forward a little more quickly, but under a different framework. I'd be interested in your thoughts on both issues.
1: Yeah. In regard to the investment, there are really a number of different models. For example, you know, if you look at a rotavirus vaccine or a, even a typhoid vaccine, which I used before, sometimes we have vaccines that are dual market vaccines right it may be a disease like rotavirus that affects children everywhere or a disease like typhoid where you might have a traveler's market in a richer country and an endemic market in a poorer country so you know there are ways to price vaccines for example to allow both of those to be favorable. And of course, we have purchasing agencies such as Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, or or even PAHO, where through bulk purchasing, we can get more favorable pricing for low and middle income countries, for example. It becomes a bit harder with some of the other vaccines I mentioned, malaria vaccine or a loss of fever vaccine that are gonna be more targeted to low resource countries. And again, this is where a government investment or foundation investment, we need to de-risk the cost of the development there because you're not going to have your return on your investment as you would with many other vaccines. In terms of the regulatory, you know, we talk about scientific innovation, but you're absolutely right. We have seen a lot of regulatory innovation during this COVID-19 pandemic. And again, I think monkeypox is another example where we are willing to use animal studies, for example, where we're willing to build a body of evidence rather than following a strict pathway. There are a number of efforts to try to increase regulatory capacity in other countries as well because that will need to go hand in hand with what I was discussing before. If we're going to have more geographic diversity with manufacturing, then we also need to build strong regulatory agencies around the world. And it may not be country by country, it may be regionally, you know, the World Health Organization may be able to play a role there. But we did see a lot of regulatory agency collaboration during COVID-19.
2: So, Kathy, I I agree that there are different economic models that can work. And I harp on this because ultimately I am concerned that this is the primary driver. We saw with COVID a massive governmental investment, which accelerated remarkable development within a year. Within a year from pathogen identification, we had vaccines that were authorized. Truly remarkable, but had a massive investment. I remain concerned. That as the pandemic turns into an endemic concept and we learn to live with it as we do with flu, which I agree with you, we should not be comfortable with 50,000 deaths estimated annually in this country alone from flu, that we should be okay with that. However, it requires investment in the inter-pandemic period. And I worry that industry will not see the return. And if it needs to come from governmental sources or foundation sources, how we make the case from the academic and the public health community so these other communities continue to appreciate the importance of preparedness and pre-positioning countermeasures for what we know are annual threats like flu, yet we don't do that. Are there ways for us to help inspire the community to make these investments?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And Lindsay, you and I were involved from the beginning in these COVID-19 development efforts. We saw the unprecedented government resources. And without those, these successes simply wouldn't have happened. And again, when you start to think about a second-generation influenza or COVID-19 vaccine, right, the calculus is different. I'm not going to have the same piece of the market that I may have had before. Sure, I might be able to develop a marginally better vaccine, but that's gonna cost more and I'm gonna charge more. And will I be able to price this in both a competitive way that allows it to be used and to recoup my investments? And we've seen this with influenza for years. If you need to do comparative studies to prove your vaccine is better, then that's very expensive and we could say that's a disincentive. We know people have short memories. I did not expect them to be as short as they've turned out to be. In my view, the government, the U.S. government must continue to invest in second generation COVID-19 vaccines. These are not small R01 investments, right? These are major investments to keep this field going and to continue to develop these vaccines which as you have articulated, aren't going to have the granular market-driven model necessarily. So we've seen how much pandemics cost. We've seen how much money was saved by rolling out vaccines sooner instead of later. I think it's convincing our government, our policymakers, you know, global governments, global agencies, that these investments are absolutely necessary.
0: In that regard, do you think the reluctance of many people to take vaccines makes it more difficult to develop new agents?
1: Yeah, I don't see those two as being tied together. Certainly, if we are talking about a market or a particular vaccine, usually the fraction of people that aren't taking a vaccine is not enough to make a difference in that market. So again, I don't believe that they are driving decisions on vaccine development. I do believe that they can affect ultimate disease control. And so, as I said, therefore investments in understanding hesitancy, understanding communication should be proceeding in parallel.
2: As you mentioned earlier, Vaccine hesitancy, by some, is not a belief, but rather understanding the disease to be avoided, the properties of the vaccine, the efficacy, the safety. In particular, thinking about the safety, which all of us are concerned about. As vaccines are developed and as the COVID vaccines were developed, we understood the efficacy from small numbers. 30,000, 40,000 participants, but safety is a much harder thing to assess as rare events often take millions exposed. How do you think about the safety processes that went on in 2021, the year after vaccines were deployed, from the FDA systems, the CDC systems, and other systems in reassuring us that we understand vaccine safety in large scale rollout? And did these systems perform the way we had hoped?
1: Yeah, Lindsay, I think these are great questions. And as you and I know, these are risk-benefit calculations. So early on in the pandemic, when our hospitals were full, our society was shut down, we saw a large number of deaths. Even having that short-term efficacy allowed us to make the calculation that there will be benefit from this vaccine, even if there are rare safety adverse events. In the same way that we saw a large, fast, historic rollout of vaccines, we saw robust, large, unprecedented safety surveillance, and they performed exactly as we wanted them to perform. They picked up rare events, quickly and early. You know, we saw some anaphylaxis events very early after rolling out the mRNA vaccines. You know, we know the thrombotic events that were picked up after the adenovirus vectored vaccines. And so again, rare events, if we can pick up rare events with this precision, then our safety surveillance is working, and yes, that was reassuring to me.
2: Kathy, I agree. The safety surveillance system surprised me in how well it performed. Many of us had concerns on how little safety data we had when the products were being launched. And as you point out, the safety events of concern were picked up quite well by the different systems set up that I've found incredibly reassuring, especially now that hundreds of millions to billions of people have been vaccinated. So it's hard to think about vaccines which have a better safety understanding than the ones we're currently using despite their use over the last two years. And I think that speaks to how academic, public health, regulatory, and industry can come together to really monitor novel treatments and ensure the safety of those treatments for the health of the public. Quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, this was the largest vaccine rollout in history, and it was the most robust safety effort in history. And we should absolutely be reassured about the way our systems work and the safety of these COVID-19 vaccines.
2: Is there a lesson here for other vaccines, Kathy, when we look forward? Do we have a system now that's gonna be equally applicable when we develop new vaccines and introduce them to the population?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the beauty of many of these safety surveillance systems is that they're not disease specific or vaccine specific. Now, we have to be able to maintain them, right? And we've seen this with local health departments. We're already seeing this with de-investments after COVID. We have to be able to maintain these infrastructures at the local level, at the CDC level, at the FDA level. If we maintain them, absolutely, they can be utilized for other vaccines.
0: Thank you, Kathy, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.